Please turn to, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Last week we read the first few verses of the book, of the chapter on Jesus' death and burial, and we continue on some further comments regarding the resurrection. And our scripture reading will be from verse 12 through verse 22. And following the reading of scripture, we'll sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. But but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. As we continue thinking about the work of Christ, we go from his death, burial, his suffering, death, burial, now to the great work of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It hasn't been that long since we took time to look carefully at the historical account in the Gospel of Matthew. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most significant event in all of history. Jesus Christ is the hinge on, uh, on which the, uh, the history of the world uh, turns. And we have, before Christ came, the time before Christ, B.C., and since he came, Anno Domine, in the year of our Lord. And Christ is at the center point, in the center of his work, And his life is his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Now, our world tries to blur all that a little bit, sometimes in rank unbelief, other times simply by relabeling the years before Christ came to BCE, before the Common Era. But they can't eliminate the reality and the truth of Christ's life and presence. And the New Testament records of Christ's life and death and resurrection are more, more, they're more attested than any other ancient writing. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is attested in a greater way than any uh, ancient event. And so when we come to think about the resurrection, it's a very valuable and important truth for us to think about. Christianity is a historical religion. It's rooted in history. 
Christ's resurrection isn't just that he's raised in our thoughts or our lives. He was actually literally physically raised from the dead. And that's critical and very important for us. Now, our catechism question is focusing on the benefits of Jesus' resurrection. But before we get into that, I wanted to just give you a few thoughts on the evidences for the resurrection. James Montgomery Boyce suggests, among others, five evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to want to give those to you. The first is the uh, narratives of the gospel themselves. Uh, The narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give evident uh, uh, affirmation that they are genuine, true Uh, recollections of the events that took place. And as uh, Boyce suggests, there's two ways to make them fabricated. One would be if the four were totally independent of each other, had no contact with each other, maybe even no contact with any of the events, and wrote something. The other side of the creating fabrications would be if they colluded and agreed on we're going to say this. And if they were totally isolated from one another, their accounts would be so dramatically different, they wouldn't even sound like one another. But if they had colluded together, then there wouldn't be the unique characteristics of each gospel account. But the fact of the matter is, the four gospel accounts, they all agree, they're all witnesses, or they've heard the testimony. Luke probably got his testimony from Mary, but at any rate, the gospel writers got testimony. They saw it themselves. They were there, and their accounts perfectly fit people who were part of that period of history. A second line of evidence is the empty tomb. The tomb was empty. Nobody argues about that. Everybody understands the tomb was empty. And the one thing that the enemies of Christ and the gospel could have done uh, to disprove the gospel, to disprove the message of the apostles, is simply to produce the body. If Christ had not risen again, they could have simply said, look, here's, here's his body. He surely didn't rise again. But they didn't have that because he had risen again. And even if the enemies want to say the disciples stole the body, besides all the problems uh, that you have to deal with regarding that fact, it's a, it's a general rule of thumb that a person's not going to die for what they know to be a myth. But they knew it was the truth. And so they were able to stand and defend it and sacrifice for it. A third line of evidence is the grave clothes. If someone was going to steal the body, they wouldn't take the time to unwrap the body. They would just grab the body and go. But even if they took the time to unwrap the body, you would have found the grave clothes just strewn all over the place because they would have been in a hurry to get out of there. But that's not what was found. What was found is the grave clothes all laid in an orderly fashion as they had been wrapped around the body. 
And the only explanation for that is the resurrection body uh, came out of those grave clothes and left them where they were laying. A fourth line of evidence is the change in the lives of the disciples. During that period of time between his crucifixion and even uh, in, the front, in the garden of Gethsemane, the, uh, the disciples were cowards. They were fleeing. They were hiding. They weren't bold and, and uh, strong. They, they were retreating. But the, after the resurrection... You see John and Peter standing boldly in the temple, even with the threat of, of uh, persecution and maybe even death, standing and declaring Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And J. Gresham Machen wrote, What was it that within a few days transformed a band of mourners into the spiritual conquerors of the world? It was not the memory of Jesus' life. It was not the inspiration which comes from past contact with him. But it was the message. He is risen. That message alone gave to the disciples a living Savior. And it alone gives to us a living Savior today. And then his fifth line of evidence. And I'll just read you his paragraph. He writes, one of my favorite evidences for the resurrection is the change of the Christian day of worship from the Sabbath, Saturday, the day Jews observed, to Sunday, the first day of the week. The early Christians were Jews. Jews worshiped on the seventh day because this was the day that God had chosen for him to be worshiped. Yet without any discussion, apparently without any argument at all, the worship habits of the church were suddenly switched over from the seventh day of the week to the first. Why? Obviously because the early Christians believed that Jesus had risen from the dead on the first day of the week. And they met not to observe the old traditions of Judaism, but to mark the resurrection. The resurrection is an established fact, whether people want to believe it or not. Uh, it's part of our history and it establishes truth for our faith. Now the catechism answer, what it's doing is saying, so what is the benefit of that truth for us? <clears throat> and it gives three things uh, that it highlights that are for our benefit. Uh, righteousness, holiness, and glorification. And those three things become, for, for this answer, uh, things it's highlighting for us to think about how Jesus' resurrection benefits us. Uh, by his resurrection, Jesus overcame death and was victorious over death, sin, Satan, and purchased for us and achieved for us uh, the, the, the glorious hope that we have. Why was the resurrection necessary? Why wasn't Jesus' death alone enough? Because you see, that didn't complete the work of redemption. Uh, that would have meant that death and the evil one had still won. The resurrection 
purchased the accomplishment of our redemption and was absolutely necessary. And the first thing <clears throat> thinking about it is righteousness. It purchases righteousness for us. Uh, there are several things thinking about this. Turn to the book of Romans, beginning at Romans chapter 1. We'll go to several passages in Romans, but I want to begin at Romans 1, verse 1. In Romans 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So one of the things that the resurrection does is it, it affirms and declares in no uncertain terms the authority and the dignity and the worthiness of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And his resurrection declares that and proclaims that and affirms that. Now turn to Romans chapter 4, verse 25. <clears throat> Romans four twenty-five, Where Paul writes this, He was delivered over to death for our sins <clears throat> and was raised to life for our justification. The resurrection was necessary to purchase our righteousness. To purchase our justification. His death atoned for our sin, but his resurrection paid the final step of our righteousness and provided that. As Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, as we were reading that, was dialoguing about the necessity of the resurrection, he made that point. If Jesus hasn't been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. <clears throat> so your faith isn't futile and you're not still in your sins, but by his resurrection, he accomplishes your justification and provides that righteousness in Christ. Uh, the resurrection demonstrated publicly and in no uncertain terms that Jesus' atonement was enough. Enough for the payment of your sin. Enough for the reconciliation with God. Uh, enough to present you holy in God's presence. The resurrection declared that. Jesus' sacrifice was enough and it purchased that. There's one other element I want you to think about too. <clears throat> still under this category of righteousness, but another aspect of why the resurrection was necessary is that it enabled Jesus to fully um, enter into his work as mediator. Uh, Jesus as mediator, as an atoning sacrifice, he represents us to God, or his blood does, and he represents God to us. But there's a work for Christ following uh, his resurrection, and that's his ruling on our behalf. That's his intercession on our behalf. So keep your finger in Romans because we're going to be coming back to there. 
But turn for a moment to the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 37. Here we have a prophecy that's related to the coming Messiah and God's work and blessing for his people. Uh, The mediator will be a ruler over his people and intercessor for his people. Here in Ezekiel 37, 23, they will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses. For I will save them all from, uh, excuse me, I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd and they will follow my decrees, my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. And Jesus' resurrection uh, and then in addition, his ascension, which we'll look at next time, are part of Jesus' enthronement as our mediatorial king. His purging of our sins and his reigning over us in righteousness. And if you're back in uh, Romans 8, we have uh, another part of his work here. It's in Romans eight thirty four. Jesus as our mediator, we know from Psalm 110, God declares, um, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What is one of the roles of the high priest? It's to intercede for God's people in Romans 8, 34. uh, We have that wonderful encouragement. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. His resurrection purchases our justification and it puts him in the role of our mediator. And when condemnation is thrown at us, he turns it away. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Well, no one. No one can. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, and who was raised again is at the right hand of God interceding for us. He's our great high priest. All part of the purchase, all part of the benefit that we get from his wonderful and glorious resurrection from the dead. Well, the second benefit that our answer has us think about is holiness. By his resurrection, Jesus Christ has resurrected us to, not the final resurrection, but currently resurrected us to a new life. Uh, You see, the resurrection gives us hope from, from the past, for the present, and for the future. Now here, turn to Romans 6, uh, Romans 6, verse 4. And we have this wonderful description of our our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So Romans 6, verse 4, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, 
we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. The death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so you see what the resurrection did for us is that in our union with Christ, we died to sin and were alive to righteousness so that sin shall no longer have dominion over you. Now, you and I will always struggle as long as we live in these bodies with sin. And we will have our failings and we'll have our struggles, but we are regenerated to a new life. We're united to Christ. We're bound with him. We died with him and we were raised with him so that sin would no longer have dominion over us. And that's a benefit we receive from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we're resurrected to a new life. Uh, The life of sin is behind us. The life of righteousness is in us. And that's a wonderful blessing that was purchased by his resurrection. And then the third benefit that it directs our thoughts to is glorification. The uh, hope of that future glorious resurrection uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, one of the comments Paul makes, one of the phrases that he used, he says, Christ indeed has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And he repeats that phrase, first fruits. And the phrase first fruits reminds us of the uh, pattern and practice in the law and in the nation of Israel in the old covenant, how that in the spring, the early harvest, they would bring the grain and the fruits of the harvest to the Lord as the first fruits of the harvest. That was part of their offering to the Lord. But what that meant was that first fruit to the Lord was a confirmation of their hope and their expectation that the rest of the harvest is going to come. And those who come in from the harvest with the grain will say, look what we've gotten and the rest of the harvest is on its way. And there is hope in the expectation of the future harvest. Well, you see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is exactly the same thing. He's the first fruits with a guarantee, in his case, the farmers in the old covenant, even today, you know, they're dependent on the weather, but this is a guarantee. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, so that when he comes back, he will bring them with him. It's a guarantee of the harvest. He's the first fruits. It's the anticipation of the harvest. We anticipate that great and wonderful day when 
We long for it for those we love that have gone on to be with him. But with Jesus, it's a guarantee. Because he will lose none that the Father has given to him. That raised him up at the last day. That's what he said in John chapter 6. It's the will of my Father that I should lose none of those that he has given me. But raise them up at the last day. He will accomplish that. It's a guarantee. It's an assurance. So the benefit of Jesus' resurrection is our own resurrection. It's glorification. It's that we will dwell with the Lord in glory forever and ever. And on that day, we will have new bodies. They'll look the same. We'll recognize one another, but it'll be a glorious body. And we don't know the mechanics of all that. We know it's true. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians 3, Paul is staying, saying overall in the chapter, you know, I don't revel in my human accomplishments. I'm willing to get rid of my human accomplishments because I long for something. And uh, we'll pick up his thought regarding that in verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, don't read into verse 11 any kind of doubt. When he says somehow, he's not saying, well, I wonder if I'm going to be raised from the dead. That's not in any way what he's saying. What he's saying is so that However it's going to occur, whatever's going to take place between now and then, I will attain to the resurrection of the dead. He's confident about that. And that's what he longs for. And as he comes to the conclusion of the chapter, he thinks about this again. So in verse 20, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Jesus is the first fruits of those who fall for, for us and for those who have fallen asleep. A guarantee of the future hope of, the, of our resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is a glorious truth for us. You and I recall the historical fact of his resurrection and can base our, the hope of our faith on that historical fact. But the purpose for our reflecting on it is to remember the great benefit that he brings to us through it. Our righteousness, that we're justified before the presence of God were declared righteous in God's sight so there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus holiness it means that our lives can be transformed by his power and renewed so that we can live godly lives for Christ and it's for glory a confirmation and affirmation that we will experience glory with him forever. 
May the wonderful truth of the resurrection of Christ enable you to rejoice with delight in the message of the resurrection, which is he is risen. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the tremendous blessings that come to us. Help us to have confidence in the righteousness he purchased for us, uh, the new heart, the holiness that we can live in because of his new life, because of his resurrection, and the hope that we have going through all the struggle of this life that one day we will experience glory with you forever and ever. May you bless us with these truths and enable us to walk in hope and in faith in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.